This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE Intellinews. Russia's Vladimir Putin has forced the West into negotiations over NATO expansion and is trying to cut some sort of new security deal. I talked to Charlie Robertson, the head of research at Renaissance Capital, about how did we get here? Is any kind of deal possible? And what might happen if talks fail? There is a version of this podcast on YouTube. Check our channel if you want to watch it. So welcome, everybody. Um, my name is Ben Harris. I'm the editor-in-chief of <coughs> B&E and Telenews. Uh, I'm joined by... Um, Doyen of the markets, a Russia veteran, uh, Charlie Robertson, who's the head of research uh, EM at Renaissance Capital, old friends of BNE. And we're going to talk today about the whole um, NATO expansion and security talks that are going on and what might happen and what might not happen and what does it all mean. Charlie, good to see you. Nice to see you too. On a technical note, um, we're have this on zoom it's also streaming on youtube for people who've joined us there hello um there will be a recording at youtube that you can see later i'll post that on the bne site um and we'll also probably follow up with an email blast to remind people at the same time we're streaming this on twitter spaces um which didn't work so well last time um it means i can see you guys in the room. Um, we might attempt to take questions or comments later on if we can make that work. Um, however, I'm going to focus on the Zoom broadcast for the time being because um, it's got a picture. <laughs> so, Charlie, um, in the pre-talk discussion, I was suggesting maybe to put some structure on this and keep um, it from wandering off too long that we try and answer three questions. How we got here and specifically the role of Ukraine. Um, is there any chance or space for a deal? And if there is no deal, what's going to happen next? So let's start with how we got there. Uh, you what, know my temptation is to start with a conclusion, what happens next. Um, oh, we but, could do. <laughs> well, I'm assuming that we get no public deal, that this is unacceptable to NATO, Putin's offer in December, um, and my interest in doing this with you was partly because you had got a little bit more concerned about the consequences of that yes. uh, a, a week or two ago. And I have to admit, I've been doing my own rethinking um, and been rereading that, that book on Georgia that I've been tweeting about, The Little War, Forgotten War. Um, and and it, I have come up with a, a new level of concern um, mm. as a result of that. And the, the level of concern is to do with the frozen conflict. My base case since 2014 has been that if you've got a frozen conflict in a country, NATO will never expand to it. That's why Cyprus isn't there, Moldova, Ukraine, Georgia. Um, and therefore, Putin had nothing to worry about once he had secured Donbass as a frozen conflict. Rereading the book, what's of course obvious is that NATO did offer Georgia membership in 2008, despite the frozen conflicts. Mm. So the lesson for Putin could be that it does, actually a frozen conflict isn't enough. What you need is a war to prove to the West what they're taking on if they insist on talking about expanding NATO. I, I that, agree. And I, I would add to that 
one of the current changes, one of the things that also has provoked this, and I agree that uh, Donbass is all about stopping uh, Ukraine from, from joining NATO, um, because in theory, you're not allowed to join NATO if there's a disputed border, because then you can go into war straight away and then everyone gets dragged in straight away. You can see how that logic works. But I think what, the, in the calculus of the Kremlin, what's changed is, is the money that's going in to support Ukraine. And there's been a lot of arms deals that the U.S. has given 250 million uh, each year for the last two years. This year it's getting 400 million. The, the Brits just did a $1.3 billion naval deal to upgrade Ukraine's navy. And then, um, what's his name? Uh, Benjamin, the, the defense minister, was in Kiev at the end of last year. And they're, they're talking about um, more arms for the army. And on top of that, you had Turks with their drone, uh, which also was then used. And moreover, the javelins, they came with a, a, a rider in the, in the contract that you, Ukraine could have the javelin missiles, but they weren't allowed to use them. They could only use them if they were attacked, you know, with tanks across the border. That changed. And so javelins have just been used as well. And now the states are talking about sending stingers. So what this all means is that the concern for the Kremlin up until now has been de jure joining NATO. But what the Kremlin's now afraid of is de facto joining NATO with all these arms going in there. And I think their fear is that at some point Zelensky or the government will attempt to take Donbass back by force. And I don't think it's going to happen soon, but that's the fear. And they want to actually finish this off now. I I agree with that. And I think that's why we saw the mobilization of troops in, in November. But the reason I wasn't worried about the mobilization of troops was, I assumed that Zelensky would look back at what happened to Saakashvili after 08. Mm. His party lost the 2012 elections. He lost the presidential election in 2013, um, which party did. So it wasn't likely. And given that, I didn't have to worry too much about Russian troops on the border. But, but what if it's not just about fear of Donbass being retaken? It's also fear that Turkey was saying in April, Ukraine should be brought into NATO, despite the frozen conflict. And that, I, I, that, I mean, I, I think that, look, can I ask you a simple question before we go a little any further? Because if, you know, on the Twitter debate, lively one that we've been having, that there's a very clear divide in um, the how people see this. On the one hand, people like you and I think this is all about NATO and Donbass is all about preventing Ukraine joining NATO. And then there's another camp, Mike McFowl, uh, various other people, who are arguing that Putin abhors the democracy in Ukraine. And actually, this is all about destabilizing Ukraine and ensuring that democracy fails, ensuring he's afraid that a successful Ukraine would undermine his regime. And there's a strong element of truth to that. But then Putin is actively destabilizing Ukraine in order so that Ukraine can never succeed and never be the example to the Russian people that would ask him. Do, do you buy that at all? No, I've got I've got some some sympathy for it, but I when I, whenever I raise that issue in in Moscow, I get laughed at. Mm. Um, people are saying, "What are you talking about? We fear Ukraine. Look at their per capita GDP, a few thousand dollars. Look at us, we're at over ten thousand dollars." I think Ukraine would actually be a far more successful challenge and threat to to the Russian model if it accepted a Finlandization model of focusing on the economy, growing as wealthy as, as, as Finland has done, as successful as Finland has become, um, or potentially the Israel model and, and 
buying the defense arms that it would like to, to give itself more security and also still focusing on a strong economy. Either one of those in the long run is actually a, a bigger issue. But, you know, from what I hear, Russia will accept a Finlandization model for, for Ukraine, which I suspect would lead to closer and closer cooperation with Europe and, and be very good for it. So as it stands, I don't think that Ukraine is seen as a, a, a potential issue. Um, it, it would also be equating Ukraine with Georgia in 08. And I don't think Georgia in 08 was seen as a, a rival to, to, to the Russian thinking either. Clearly, when Putin acts on these issues, it's security which is leading this. Yeah, it's he's both- made that clear over and over again. So it's it, come back to answer my first question, how we got there. I mean, I, I see a very clear timeline here um, of Putin getting increasingly concerned, policy mistakes on our side, the sort of Cold War mentality, him being ex-KGB on his side. But if you remember when he came in, his first trip was to the UK and uh, with Tony Blair and relations were great. And Putin stood on the floor of the House of Commons and did the TNKBP deal with 50-50 split, you know, straight 50-50. I mean, this was a gesture here, have access to our oil. And moreover, we're going to do this on, on absolute equity so that no one has the upper hand here as partners. And then that went swimmingly until I was three. And also Bush came to visit um, in Moscow and looked into he looked into Putin and saw his, his eyes and saw his soul. And then it all started to go wrong in um, 2003 when America unilaterally withdrew from the ABM Treaty. And I was sort of ringside seat to the negotiations to that. And um, the Russians freaked out. And then it progressed from one treaty after the other, got uh, to the point where Putin in 2007 was already very concerned and made that famous speech in Munich saying, look, you keep pulling out of all these Cold War deals and we've done nothing, but you know, we will do something at some point. Until you got to 2012, where he started rearming. And that was, you know, the, the Rubicon, which followed up in 2014 with the taking of uh, Crimea, which was all about the naval base there. And it wasn't, he had a feeling of being excluded. Um, and it's a point I've been making in an op-ed today was that the trouble with NATO um, is that it's a security, regional security deal that excludes Russia. And we were just debating about this on Twitter as well. Putin um, actually asked to join both the EU and NATO in his first term and was rebuffed from both. And if you look at the articles that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs sent out, one of the items, number three, is that we, the, the two counterparties to this agreement, agree not to be enemies. And I've been thinking about that. I think that's actually key because if NATO is exclusive, um, it's a defense organization against what? Against Russia. It de facto implies Russia is the enemy, whereas Putin in the beginning of his term was reaching out and wanted to be a partner. And he's been rebuffed and rebuffed all the way down, tried to get into WTO. That took 18 years. Tried to get into the EU, was told no. Tried to get into NATO, was told no. And now what he's demanding is a security deal, but this will be an inclusive security deal between the West and Russia, which surely is a good thing, because then that will... At the moment, they have no levers of, to, to negotiate with the West other than moving troops around, which is what it's been doing. Does, would you agree with all of that? Yeah, yeah. Um, but well, maybe I just throw in that he does have some levers in terms of playing around with gas a little mm. bit uh, as well. But... Uh, 
No, I, I think I think he's very concerned. He's sitting there feeling under pressure. NATO keeps expanding, and the trouble is, the more it expands, the more anxious Russia gets, and the more belligerent it acts, which then increases NATO's uh, appeal to 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 countries. Um, it's just joking that Putin is the best recruiter for NATO has ever had, and it's true. That's that's true, but NATO has created that demand for itself. When it expands to Poland, you know, Ukraine saying, "What about us?" When it expands to Ukraine, Russia acts belligerently, and then, and then Ukraine really wants to join, and then more countries want to join. So it's it's an institution which has managed to create demand for itself, which I think is quite impressive. Um, given I assumed in the early '90s it would be gone yeah. uh, by the end of the '90s, um, but but to get to where we are now and what what happens when. NATO does not agree to this, does not agree to a Finlandization model, despite the fact that I don't believe, I don't believe NATO is going to extend membership. Despite the promise made in 2008, I don't think that's realistic because Russia, we know, would react. Yeah, no, and that's the irony of the situation is everyone's perfectly aware of that. And so there's been no map, you know, the, the membership uh, session program there's been a promise. Well, the, the, the Budapest, uh, the Bucharest, uh, 20, 2008, which you mentioned, mm. that was like non-binding. That was a sort of open-ended, like, yes, maybe one day they can. And that came from NATO. NATO itself has a vested interest, as you said, in um, actually hyping all of this because that's the its raison d'etre is to exist against Russia. And so NATO as an organization has no interest in actually seeing this thing solved. But the member countries, 30 member countries, you know, it's up to them at the end of the day. And there is more interest, particularly in Europe. But then Europe is, I don't know, after, this is another interesting aspect that Putin's decided to do this now when uh, Merkel has gone. Europe is very divided between pro-Russia, Hungary, Serbia, um, well, not member, uh, or anti-Poland, Baltics. And Biden's come in, and Biden is actually a real dove on this issue. And I mentioned the ABM treaty. When Biden was a senator, he actually argued stringently against leaving the ABM. And so Putin's got a counterparty who's actually willing to do arms deal. And in the first week Biden was on the job, he reversed that withdrawing from these Cold War treaties and re-signed the START now three treaty, which is the first one put back in place. And I... In, in, you know, again, from my two questions, you know, is there any common ground? I mean, on arms control, absolutely there is. Yeah, no, I, I agreed, agreed. But, but the question of, of this NATO issue is, is the one that, that I assume Biden said privately. I can only assume that Biden said privately, it's not going to happen. Yeah. We do not want another conflict. You don't want another conflict. I think it would be, you know, a colleague in Moscow literally emailed me an hour ago saying this is the last resort. For, mm. for Putin is to have conflict. So neither of them want it. As long as a private assurance has been made that while Biden's president anyway, it's not going to happen, then Biden can focus on his US domestic political priorities, which are the most important, followed by China, followed by all of the other issues coming up. He doesn't want to see this escalate now. And if that's the case, Putin you know, talks a lot about, I'm a man of my word. I keep my word. I keep my promises. If Biden's saying that to him, he could he could sit there and listen, knowing Biden's history with Russia, and and we get to what twenty, well, hopefully twenty eight, let's say, with this problem pushed out, possibly twenty four, depending what Biden does. So my my base case is we get 
de-escalation now. This, these talks are about giving the cover for that. Putin sends the troops back off, off duty for a little while. Biden says, I've stood up for an ally. Didn't really do that in Afghanistan, but I've done it over Ukraine. And then and, and Putin's back down and everybody comes out reasonably peacefully. I, I don't think so. Uh, I, think, I think Putin's been preparing for this for 14 years. I think he has thought about it very carefully. And another, because he brought up, for one thing that makes me, there's a couple of things that make me suspicious, I think this. Um, one is he keeps referring to these verbal promises that were made to Gorbachev. And I know that these are controversial, but I just wrote it up. I went into the archive. It's incontroversial that, that Gorbachev was made a whole bunch of promises by a whole bunch of people. Genscher, uh, Baker called that this, uh, NATO would never expand. And he brought specifically those provinces up in his 2007 speech. He brought it up again in his press conference. And he's got to be in his bonnet about NATO. And we've been saying openly that he's paranoid about it. Uh, it should be defensive, but he, he sees it as aggressive, as I argued before, because it makes Russia an enemy. And I think he, he wants now, it appears, to make the West honor those verbal promises they made to Gorbachev, but this time it has to be done in writing. And if you listen to Ryabkov's press conference in Geneva on Monday, he was absolutely crystal clear. This is the issue. And we're talking about written legal guarantees, which in the context of the verbal guarantees from Gorbachev, um, it, it, you know, the, you can see where it came from. The second thing that makes me um, think that he's been preparing is, you know, first of all, the rearming, then the CBR had this policy of buying up gold and building up the reserves. And there was a clear target, 500 billion, which we uh, passed last uh, last year. And then if you look at the new budget, Russia now has 38% um its reserves are equivalent to 38% of GDP. It's, it's an enormous amount of money, but it effectively makes Russia sanction proof because it can just buy its way out of any trouble. And in the new budget, they've just increased this cap on money that goes that can be spent from the National um, Welfare Fund, fund from 7% to 10% which means coming the next three years, they're intending to accumulate even more money, which can only mean that Putin can see coming that there's going to be continued problems with the West and possibly even bigger sanctions so that the pot they have to put, you know, cushion is got even larger. Why would he do that? Why would he increase the reserves, which are already insanely large if he wasn't expect, expecting trouble? I, I buy that. I Rereading Not an Inch... Uh, which is such an, another interesting book that I thought I don't bother because it's about the 90s and I remember them. Actually, there's still loads of stuff I'd forgotten uh, and a bit, few bits I didn't know. It is worth a reread. Um, and, and what comes across really clearly from that is that Gorbachev and uh, Yeltsin basically just had to give in to a whole host of issues, including on NATO expansion, for the promise of cash. And it wasn't put quite as explicitly as that, but that, that's what it came down to. Putin never wants to be in that position, and he's not. But I still think he could walk away from the talks. Well, the talks kind of failed to give him what he wants now. He's got no imminent need to prove that Ukraine can't join NATO through another military intervention. He, hasn't, he doesn't have to do that imminently, but building up reserves over the next two to three years for the next US president who lets him down, okay, yeah, he wants to keep himself in that position. He wants to keep his geopolitical flexibility. Uh, we're going we're to put out a piece in a few hours, hopefully, about the new sanctions that are being 
suggested by the Democrats yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not being able to buy trade sovereign debt. American investors wouldn't be able to do that. Um, this, this kind of defense, well, defense and tech stuff and, and various measures that are being talked about, the potential sanctioning of, of financial institutions. So we're going to try and put some numbers on it. Mm-hmm. But at face value, doesn't look good. It doesn't look powerful enough to stop a conflict over Ukraine if Putin felt he had no other choice, which if it was to become a NATO member, he would feel mm. it had no other choice. But I, I don't think we're, I, we're not at that stage. I don't think NATO's about to give Ukraine membership. So no. we not need to act yet. Indeed. But um, another reason why I think he's actually going to take this opportunity uh, now, he sees now as an opportunity. I mean, the political setup with Merkel gone and Biden being a great counterparty for this conversation is that um, Ukraine is his big legacy issue. And, you know, as Russia watches, Kremlin watches, have been saying for a while that he's tired of the job, he wants to go, in so much as he's taken himself out of the day-to-day completely, that's all been given over to, you know, um, Nabulina, the economics ministry, uh, finance ministry, and he just does the big, you know, set piece, oil and gas and geopolitical stuff. And, uh, you know, no one knows. Um, I'm sceptical. I think he's there till 2030 and beyond, maybe. So, I, you, you, you know, if that assumption is right, I mean, the, the, the fact that he's tired. Um, and would, if, he's, if he's planning to go in 24, it makes sense that he yeah. sort this out. Yeah, that, that's, that's, this is a scenario, again, it's a bit guessing here. But, I mean, if that's true, and people have been saying for a while that he's tired, then he can't leave while Ukraine is unresolved. And it's his big legacy issue. And it's obviously very close to his heart. He wrote that big essay about it. He's been thinking about it a lot. And that if he can actually settle the whole Ukraine question, which is boils down to the NATO deal, um, then he could retire um, and take some time off. And if it's still up in the air, he'll probably stay on. I and mean, that's a very simple and, as I say, a bit of a guess. But it's definitely a, a scenario I think should be taken seriously now. I like that scenario. I don't, I, uh, it, it wouldn't be my central one, but it's a, no, it's a properly interesting one. Um, but I, yes, my assumption is that he, that the other alternative, he doesn't get what he wants from NATO because NATO isn't going to give him that assurance publicly. And then, what, punishing Ukraine with another conflict, getting more sanctions on Russia, that's not a legacy issue. He wants to, no, indeed. Be leaving behind him in 2024 either. No, indeed. But Russia's ready for that. I mean, this, look, I think the timing, because there's another aspect to this, is that Ukraine has been getting stronger and stronger. In 2014, when they took Crimea, they could have walked to Kiev. There would have been no resistance whatsoever. And that's not true anymore. You've got, like, veterans, you've got weapons, people. The, the motivation on the Ukrainian side is, like, huge. A third of the population said that they would fight. The insurrection that would be there, even if they did invade and occupy, would be insane. It's, it's just not viable. So let, let's deal with the other question I raised. Like, if these talks fail, what's going to happen? You're arguing that Putin's, you know, had insurance from Biden that there's going to be no conflict and that he's just going to walk away and... We're going to go back to the frozen conflict and actually Ukraine's never going to join NATO anyway because no one's actually offering that. And the whole pro-Ukraine lobby is saying there's no plans to put missiles in there, there's no plans to put weapons in there. So Putin's, you know, you know, blowing a lot of hot air and 
people like me are saying that it's going to happen eventually and that's what Putin's afraid of, um, are getting brushed down. I, I don't know, where, where do you stand on all of that? Sorry, what's the last bit that Putin... I, I'm saying Putin's against NATO joining because, uh, sorry, Ukraine joining NATO because eventually, or the possibility comes that like Poland and Romania, it gets missiles, defense missiles, it'll be sold there, but that something goes in there. And this is what Putin is afraid of. He wants to make sure that it become, it's, it can never happen, that the NATO arms could never go into Ukraine, which is why he wants to exclude it. And the pro-Ukrainian lot are saying, but look, it's not on the cards anyway. Like you're saying, it's never going to join because it hasn't been offered and there are no plans to put missiles in there. And so why is Putin scared? You know, why not just leave everything? And by the way, he should leave Donbass as well. Yeah, but he is scared because Nagorno-Karabakh was reconquered in the space of weeks after mm. 30 years frozen. I mean, he is concerned by that. He is concerned by the US putting arms in. So I do think when I say the talks fail, the talks fail to give Putin the ultimate security he's looking for of withdrawing the 2008 offer to Georgia and Ukraine of, of membership. Um, but the talks can succeed in terms of we're not going to have US ships sailing across the Black Sea and parked outside Sevastopol. We, we, they can succeed in terms of not having planes overflying too close to the Russian border. And that seems perfectly reasonable. So you can have a, some success. Then Putin in a month's time says, oh, the troops exercises, now they're all over. And, and the Americans say, oh, we've won. And, but it doesn't get reported in the Russian press. Putin feels good. He feels like he's won. He's got the Americans to agree to a few of these promises that NATO ships won't go too close. Everybody has something to walk away with. But Putin doesn't have to go down the conflict route. You, you, you think, I mean, there's this list of eight things. Um, I, I actually looked through it, and of the eight things, I was trying to work out where there's room for agreements and where there isn't. And where there isn't is clearly a ban on Ukraine joining NATO. Um, I think going back to the, um, the May 1997 setup uh, is also a non-starter for NATO, because that would mean you have to take troops out and, and de-arm people and what have you. Um, and he's also calling for the UN to take over as the lead for the security. And I think America's relationship with the UN and doing what the UN says is incredibly bad. So I think that's a non-starter. But then most of the other stuff I think you can do. I mean, going back to the, the, the Russian NATO Council um, as a diplomatic body for running relationships between the two, there's no reason why not. Um, to agree that Russia isn't an enemy, that should be simple, although I think actually it's problematic. Um, that there are no new deployments along the borders. I think uh, everybody should be happy with that. that. There's no missiles or arms brought up. I think that can be agreed. I mean, that's basically the arms control deals that both sides want. Limits on the exercises on the, along the borders. Again, something that's sensible, regulated, because it applies to Russia as well. And Russia's already explicitly said, we won't do exercises on our border if you don't do them on your side, which also makes the building up of troops next to Ukraine, impossible. So this is actually a big step forward in terms of security for, for Ukraine. Yeah. So I don't think they give up that flexibility if they haven't got the assurance of Ukrainian neutrality. Yeah, but this is the thing. I mean, there, there's actually quite a lot of common ground. However, the way Ryabkov has been talking is like none of this will happen unless we get the no expansion of NATO promise. That's the key. If we have that, then everything else is up for negotiation. If we don't have that, we're not going to talk about the other stuff. 
But you're suggesting that we could do a deal on exercises. We could do a deal on deployments. We could go back to the NATO Council and use that as a diplomatic channel in order to thrash out these problems rather than bringing the 41st Army up to Yelena and threatening trying to get something. I think Russia's problem with its proposals is that it's saying our security is the only important thing in the story. And if you give us what we want on our security in NATO, then we can agree on all these different points. Well, they, you know, I spoke to some people about this and uh, I said, well, you need to guarantee Ukrainian security too. And, and then the issue of 94 comes up and breaking that promise on the nuclear weapons and respecting Ukraine's borders. But leaving that aside, the, their argument is we can't guarantee Ukrainian territorial integrity because of Donbass, Crimea, in Georgia, it's Abkhazia, South Ossetia and so on. So I, I think personally the, the West should be saying, okay, we can give you a security assurance, even 50 year, no expansion of NATO, but you need to give something back. Mm. And that something needs to be give back all the frozen territories. Yeah. And, and then their countries, these countries, why would Ukraine would, would hate the deal that Russia's offering right now? Mm. They get nothing from it. Um, so I, I, I think the, the U.S. could have been bringing something else to the table, but they don't want to go to a complete comprehensive, even if it was possible. They don't want to go down that route, which is telling me that Biden's not prepared to make huge concessions on this issue publicly, and therefore it has to be a private deal. Well, if you, yeah, if you put it in those terms, I mean, actually the goal on Biden's side seems to be to simply to get rid of the Russian problem because he doesn't want to think about it. And what you're talking about, I agree, and Mike McFarl was saying this, and I don't always agree with Mike McFarl, but, you know, to expand the agenda, why don't we just deal with all of the Russian dirty laundry? Because, you know, you have to remember that these talks have been forced on us by Putin. He's actually made us have these talks. So he wants to deal. He wants to negotiate. And given that he's in this mood where he wants to have a deal, why not expand it and, like, deal with everything, Transnipa, Moldova, you know, uh, South Ossetia, uh, I mean, all of these, yeah. just do the lot in one go. Well, because I, I think the popular, what I was being told by Democrats last year was that basically the, the Democratic Party is sick of Russia, sick of having to think about Russia, doesn't want to have to do with it anymore. And when Biden came to power, it's all about China, forget forget Russia. And, and Russia keeps on getting back on the agenda and it's so frustrating. Mm. I wonder whether that's also feels true from the Russian side too. That Putin wants Ukraine to just stay a bit of a mess, politics unstable, not a fantastic economy. It's, it's one of the ones that hasn't met our growth forecast for last year, hasn't recovered to pre-COVID levels. Anyway, that's what he wants. But, but then in April, US ships are sailing to the Black Sea and, and Turkey's saying they should join NATO. Yeah. And then in, in November, October, you've got all these arms deals and drone missiles being used and he can't relax. He mm. has to mobilize the troops in April because he's worried something's going to happen. And he's seen it before. It happened in 08 in Georgia when mm. they did go for South Ossetia and the Russians reacted very, very heavily, but they were ready to react. And they would have been ready to react this time, this last 12 months, if anything had happened from yeah. the Ukrainian side. I have no evidence that that was going to happen. I don't, I don't think it was likely at all. But I don't think Putin had that same level of confidence. So he might also want this situation to be put away. And he's sick and tired of it and saying, right, if we could just say, resolve these issues, NATO membership stopped, then maybe he could also relax. I agree. I mean, but as I say, I, I, my, my working hypothesis is that he's been preparing for this for years. He's, he's modernized the military. 
He's built up these huge reserves. He's paid down debt. They're getting out of the dollar. You know, they're doing all these things that put them in a position to have this fight. And uh, the military modernization is like 80% finished. And so now's the time. And then at the same time, you've got this convenience, Merkel leaving, Biden coming in. So diplomatically, it could be done as well. Um, and I think he wants to get it off his agenda, partly because I think it's a legacy issue for him. So I think he's digging his heels in and wants to get it solved once and for all. And again, within the context of like holding the West to the verbal promises they made to Gorby, he wants to make that legal. And it's his legacy. And then he's kind of done. I mean, he's you know, brought Russia back from Yeltsin chaos of the 90s to a more or less normal country. And at the same time, he's dealt with the security uh, and done the put Ukraine, settled the, its status in Europe. And so I think he's going to push really hard. I don't know. I can't get past what Ryabkov was saying. Um, uh, sorry. I can't get past what Ryabkov was saying about, like, you know, we have to do this. And if we don't, we're going, you know, he's threatening. We're, we're going to use our military slash technical um, abilities in order to, to make your life hell, basically. Um, I don't know. Should we, should we not spend five minutes um, about what they can do, what the Americans will do? I mean, you said you were going to bring a note out about these sanctions if there was military. I mean, what, what's left? I was just arguing with Gagliotti the other day and saying, I don't actually see any sanctions left that are going to do anything. I mean, the things that they could sanction like oil and gas, I don't think Russia will touch those because they make money from it. And that's a big part of the income. And they've been saying for years that we are a reliable energy suppliers. So I think that's hands off. I don't know. What's, what do you think? Oh, there's always more scope for sanctions. In 2014, I was saying, I was looking at the scenarios for how do you cut oil and, and gas sanctions? And, and yes, that requires Europe to move as fast as it can or pay a lot more for oil, basically, but, uh, and the US, obviously. Um, but they weren't prepared to do that in the midst of an actual conflict. Um, so I, I, anyway, I, no, I, I, I think there's, there's always a bit more that they could do. Um, and the OFZs, I mean, the problem there, I mean, I, when, when they went after, uh, was it Dari Pasca and they, they sanctioned his bonds, I was talking to a guy from Deutsche saying, this is a nightmare. I've been, I'm holding bonds worth $100 million that I've been told will be illegal to hold in two weeks' time. Compliance is screaming their head at yeah, me. No, that, that was a, they, they learned a lesson from that. That was a mistake. They know that was a mistake. Um, and I think they're being much smarter than that now um, and, and have been actually since that, that one uh, error of, of judgment. Um, I was just wondering about whether you wanted to open up to other people, actually, as well, uh, no. which is a struggle to manage. Um, the... All right, on spaces, you can put your hand up. And Dave, if you're on the line, if we got requests or questions on the Zoom site? Have you got anyone, in Charlie, that you want to invite? Not that I can see off the top of my head, sorry. It's, it's actually, it is difficult to manage the tech and, um, and the conversation. Um, yeah, no, I was just wondering what else, what else, uh, we could usefully address, but um, we'll know more. I'll, you know, I'll know more when we get our sanctions piece out in uh, in, in in the next few hours. But uh, I trust I trust our economist on this. She's very very good. Uh, I can see the, the Roman. I can see Roman's got a, a hand up. Uh, Matthias as well. Um, how do we give them scope to uh, ask to unmute? You have Roman. To... Hi guys. Yeah. Yep, I'm here. Uh, thanks for the 
Thanks for the conversation. Um, I had a question. Maybe this is uh, something that, that both of you could take, but I guess this is to the point that Ben was making earlier. What, what happens if the talks don't succeed? And Charlie, I think you, you've talked about um, expecting that they, they might succeed in a, in a more limited way, allowing conflict to be staved off. Um, ben, you've, you've written about um, that you think the you think the response in case there is no success would be military technical rather than just military. Yeah. Um, but, Charlie, sure. I guess, could you expand on that? And, 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 and Charlie, do, do you agree? Or, or, or I guess, what do you guys think is the odds of, of an actual hot conflict where the Russian side decides that, you know, some yeah. limited or maybe, I don't know if it stays limited, a confrontation actually serves their purposes in trying to demonstrate their point about what the negotiations are supposed to be all about. Let me start briefly in so much as, you know, we, we spend a lot of time thinking we have some military guys and, and also watching the debate. I think it's pretty clear that um, the full invasion of uh, Russia, of Ukraine by, by Russia is just simply not going to happen. And to take the whole country would be possible, but the number of body bags going back to Moscow make it politically impossible for Putin. Moreover, they could take East Ukraine up to the Dnieper pretty easily. Um, and of course, all the people in East Ukraine are relatively pro-Russia. But going across the river and going into West Ukraine, where you massive insurgency, it's just not viable. Then So it's, it's definitely, if there's going to be anything military, smaller scale, possible land bridge, Novorossiya, down to Crimea, that may be. Um, but again, body bags... You, you know, the, the, you'd have to start with um, bombardment by the Russian aviation to destroy um, Ukraine's uh, aviation, which would take about two days. And then the ground forces would be at the mercy of bombing. But then that's like death and destruction on a massive scale. Uh, a sort of desert storm scenario is the only way it would happen. So I'm not expecting anything like that. Um, I think the military part of it will be gestures. And I'm, my working hypothesis is that if the talks fail, then Russia will then see itself as a defined enemy. It's kind of like not being clear until now, but it will say, all right, we're going to assume we're an enemy now, black and white, and we will redeploy everything as if we were an enemy. So we go straight back to old Cold War. We see big deployments along the border, defensive missiles being into Kaliningrad, all of that stuff, because the Russians have said that America's producing all these new hypersonic missiles and that we're going to have to act on, on the assumption they're going to be deployed against us. And so Russia will counter that or preemptively counter that. And then from the Western side of the border, this is all going to look very aggressive. From the Russian side of the border, it's like you just told us you, uh, we're your enemy and so we're preparing for an attack because we're your enemy. You just said that. And whether this is all done just plainly like that because that's what their position is going forward or whether this is done in order to take level tensions up to an even higher level so that we have a second attempt at redefining security but in a much more fraught situation. I mean, that could be also a possibility that must have occurred to the Kremlin. The, the technical bit is they're just going to screw with commodity markets and, I don't know, currency and like all of the cyber attacks and, you know, all the things, all that whole repertoire of things that they can do to cause trouble. And 
Putin's been punching above his weight. I mean, Russia is still relatively weak. Um, and even militarily, although it's strong, it's, it's nothing compared to combined NATO forces. But Putin has proven he has this incredible talent for causing trouble, and he will cause a lot of trouble. I mean, I don't think it's going to be pleasant going forward. While he makes his point, you should have done a deal with us. Uh, I would add... I would add a total agreement on on the the land kind of military side of it. Um, I'm reading back on 2008. I still find it amazing that this Russian invasion of Georgia in 08 ended up with Russian troops exactly where they were at the beginning of the conflict. Mm. No extra territory was taken. They didn't even bother to to overthrow Saakashvili. There's nothing to stop them doing so. Mm. Um, so the goal of that conflict, headline goal was protect South Ossetia from Georgian aggression. But the the subtext was rule out this country's chances of joining NATO for the next 14 years mm-hmm. and show to them what happens if you try. It wasn't to take more territory and it wasn't to even, even to overthrow Saakashvili, although they were hoping that that would happen. They assumed it would happen quite quickly. In fact, he stayed there for years. But that wasn't the goal. The goal was just to say no more NATO. And it worked. So, mm-hmm. so a new conflict with Ukraine, you know, for all this talk of invasion of Ukraine, it wouldn't surprise me if there was no shift in territory at all a month and a half after a conflict had renewed. Well, we should say, like South Ossetia, um, the, the Russians have set themselves up to, um, to annex it in the way that Crimea was annexed. They've been handing out passports, and this is a classic tactic. I mean, in Ossetia, they were going there to protect... Russian citizens, mm. because they've been handing out passports like crazy. And they've done that in Donbass. I think it's 90%, people tell me, in Donbass. They could, they could recognize Donbass as, a, yeah. as a, an independent state, which is, they didn't want to, but this is what they did in 08. Well, well, as a region of Russia, um, but it, it's it's a poison pill. I mean, this is another point we should make, that if the Ukraine did try to take that back Donbass by force, because of the Russian citizens, the Russian constitution obliges the Kremlin to protect them. And that's the, the booby trap, is, is that it can't be taken back by force without um, an open Russian military response to protect its citizens in the same way that South Ossetia is taken. So, but it is, it is an option. I mean, um, if they want, if the, Putin wants to make real trouble, um, they can have a referendum on Donbass seceding and becoming a region of Russia. Um, uh, should, should we add in Matthias to, um, who's, who's been very patient there? Yeah, Matthias, no problem. Thank you. Hi from Berlin. Um, I was wondering on two points. Uh, the first one you mentioned, the Finlandization. Um, as we see in Finland, as also in Sweden, there's now a discussion of becoming a NATO member. So Finlandization is uh, pretty well when you are, have a friendly and normal relationship with Russia. But uh, the Russian activities around Ukraine uh, is putting much fear to other neighbors like Finland. So it is not the NATO which is expanding. It, uh, that are the neighboring countries which are fleeing to NATO. It's, um, so it's a good question about Finlandization. But my question would be, um, when, there, when Russia does something militarily, uh, I don't know to which point they will go. When you see the, the article of, of Putin on, on Ukraine, you see he is talking about Levoberezhnye. That means uh, the, the left bank of the uh, Dnieper, which uh, is Russian territory. Uh, let's assume he will not take all Kharkiv and, and, and so on, but only something. 
uh, more in, in to Mariupol and, and the land way to to the Crimea, then there will be Western sanctions, including probably uh, stopping of North, North Stream two. But what what will be the Russian reaction on it, and how long can Russia survive with can survive with uh, the um, the money they put on the on the central bank uh, reserves and 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 the the uh, national funds and so on you you already mentioned how long Russia can uh, can survive with this money when there will be no no more money flows uh, for, for for because they will probably also cut the exports of gas also. If you ask me that, um, I point to Belarusia, which has had uh, five rounds of sanctions and the harshest ones that have ever been imposed. And um, there was just a report this week that trade between the EU and Belarusia doubled last year. And the sanctions, because um, there's a reluctance on the Western side um, to actually do real sanctions where it costs the West money. And the commodities that Russia produces are commodities. So you just put them out into the market, you know, through the back door, and they'll end up coming in through the front door. The gas that Ukraine is importing doesn't it hasn't imported gas from, from Russia for three or four years. And yet it's importing Russian gas. It's just coming by a at a higher cost. So I, I actually think the whole sanctions thing is um, pretty limited it does cause a pain in the neck it does cost raise costs but um in terms of actually crippling russia's economy i don't think it can be done i, I really don't i mean the and the cushion they have means in the short term they can deal with any problem um and then there's just reorientate i mean gas exports to to europe are going down anyway because of the green deal and russia's quite clearly sending and expecting to send massive amount of gas to to Asia. I mean, um, Miller said so in a speech in September. He said, that's the future. The demand there is just astronomical. And the demand in Europe, we're just trying to squeeze the end out of the toothpaste uh, tube. Charlie, what do you think? Uh, I'm, again, I'm going to wait for Sofia's report today. But uh, on that first point of Finlandization, um, yes, I think Putin is purely thinking that, that while Bush was saying uh, 15 years ago, no more Yalta's, Actually, a kind of a Yalta divide uh, agreed by the big powers of Russia and America is sits right up Putin Street in terms of what he wants to do. And, and what I'm talking about with Finlandization is that they had no choice. They were not going to be allowed to join NATO until 1990. Um, so I'm talking about that 45-year period. And, and if Russia can be reassured for the next 45 years by some sort of agreement on that, All, all good. I mean, in terms of Ukraine being able to focus on development and, and growth and making its people better off. Um, on, on terms of the, the money and how long Russia could last, mm. that depends on, firstly, how much does, does Russia do? If 50 troops go into Donbass, how many sanctions do you impose? If 20,000 go into Donbass but take no extra territory, how much do you sanction all of the 13 financial institutions in the Democrats' bill yesterday? Or maybe just five. It's got to be at least three. That's what the Democrats say. So it's, it's very... And then how, how big an effect on Russia is that? Well, it depends on the oil price. Geopolitics risks go up. Oil goes to over 100. Russia's making more money on what it's selling at the moment and in a stronger position to last even longer as a result of geopolitical tension. Um, so I, I would guess years and years. And, and the amount of countries I've had to watch 
takes so long to blow up when we knew they were going to blow up economically. Venezuela, Lebanon. Uh, I was told Lukashenko would be gone by the end of 1999 because there's no way that economy could last with him in charge 23 years ago. Still waiting. So I, I, I would argue that that Russia, that's not going to stop. The sanction story isn't going to stop mm. Russia. Do you, do you seriously still think there's going to be a deal, though? Um, a deal is possible? A deal, sorry? Do you think there's going to be some sort of deal out of this? I'm actually of the opinion that, because we, we had this conversation privately before, that um, Paul McNamara um, called me up because I was saying in the beginning that there's no way Russia will invade Ukraine, but I've become a lot more pessimistic. Uh, I just wrote a, normal, a note this morning saying these talks will fail because I, I'm pinning everything on the insistence on getting a promise that it is possible to have um, an exclusion of NATO's expansion. And the West is simply not prepared to offer that. And so Russia has said that it's going to pull the plug. And I think this will finish you know, this week. And there may be a call between Biden and, and Putin uh, afterwards to see if they can rescue something. But I think that um, it's not going to work. And then we go into the next phase of like, you know, uh, punishment and retribution. Yeah, I I think neither side want that, and I assume then private arrangements, back channel talks, happen that give Putin temporary assurance, which he won't trust, yeah. and and we could be back here again in twelve months' time, but uh, we will get a behind the scenes deal which will do enough. Yes, that's my working assumption. I have so I'm just looking at the questions. Uh, really, do I have a suntan? Uh, why has uh, Ukraine not been invited to these talks? I mean, that's actually another uh, sticking point: is that um, it should be involved in this, uh, and it quite plainly hasn't. It's the big countries that are um, talking over its head, um, and that's sort of not on. I mean, Zelensky himself has been pushing for NATO membership. For a year and has got nowhere with it. Um, sorry, I was just distracted by a local Kane who wants uh, wants some commentary. Why hasn't Ukraine? I agree. I think America should have brought Ukraine and its security issues to the table here, and said, "Yeah, you can get a fifty-year guarantee of no." I've said this: no fifty, no expansion of NATO for fifty years, and in return, give back Donbas, and and you're going to have to work out something over Crimea. Mm. Um, that that I think would have been a reasonable a reasonable way of, of addressing that issue, mm. but it, I think the Americans are not trying, as I said, for a comprehensive deal, which is why um, we haven't had that. Okay, well, Charlie, we, we've been talking for just um, just under an hour, and um, I think we've run out of things to say for the moment. Uh, should we wind it up here, or do you? Have any... I think I think probably best. <laughs> Okay, well, look, thank you everyone for listening. I hope you found that interesting. Um, the, this job, uh, this, this um, conversation, this um, negotiations is going to go on for a while. And I think we should come back to this um, fairly soon when there's another definitive step forward. As I say, I'm kind of pessimistic. I'm happy to hear Charlie is a bit more optimistic. And I do hope there is some sort of deal because I'm really fed up with crises. I've had years of I want to go back to the boom years, but anyway, it um, doesn't seem to be on the cards. 
Um, thank you again. We'll be in touch. As I say, this is going to be recorded and there'll be a version, uh, a version on YouTube if you want to come back to it and share with your friends. And um, thanks for coming. All the best. Thank you. Cheers, Ben. Thanks very much. Lovely to see you again. You too.